When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Live from Liverpool, the Dark Paranormal, Season 10. Hi everyone and welcome back to the Dark Paranormal, Season 10. First and foremost, a huge thank you to everyone who's reached out this week and to everyone who's went to check out the new website, thedarkparanormal.com. And it's been great to see some photographs of you guys wearing some of the merchandise available there. I didn't expect that much take-up, so once again, thank you very much. Now, for this episode, I have some bad news and I have some good news. The bad news is, the story I preempted last week, where I stated it wasn't safe for kids, etc., and it was going to be a very dark story... The writers asked me not to read it out, sadly. But of course, we're going to follow their wishes. Now, the good news is, what I was going to do was bring forward episode 5 and read that out today instead. However, as spooky synchronicity would have it, we've received one hell of an email in the last seven days. And although it's exceptionally rare that we would read out something so new so quick, this all seems like it's meant to be. The true paranormal experience that we're going to cover today comes in from our listener Thomas, and it's one of the likes I don't think we've heard before, certainly in terms of what's encountered. Thomas's experience comes from his childhood in the early 80s from Northern England. However, what goes on clearly originates from somewhere much much darker. But before we get to today's amazing true paranormal experience, we need to of course thank our wonderful team over at Patreon. When you sign up to Patreon, not only do you receive these episodes both ad-free and before everyone else, but you can also receive exclusive access to the Patreon-only podcast, Dark Bites. Dark Bites is a podcast that runs every Sunday of the year, even on the downtime in between seasons, meaning you never miss your paranormal fix. And because you get complete access to the back catalogue of Dark Bites, there's over a 100 hours worth of unheard content for you to binge on. We've built a wonderful community of like-minded paranormal enthusiasts over on Patreon, and we'd like to extend an exclusive invitation just for you. Simply head over to patreon.com forward slash thedarkparanormal just like these wonderful new team members have. Omar Heredia, Louise Fullylove, David Perdomo, Kirsty Sarson, Lauren Coate, Michael E., Danny Diemer, Matthew Dobson, Lindsay Irish, Alexandra Eckberg, Cheryl Bozaki, Raphael Della Torre, Chris W., Matthew Black, Tyler Liston, Hayden Horta, Erin L. Solberg, Sarah Normal, Elaine Kim, Richard Older, Hallie Shorbitz, Javier Altamirano, Patrick Campbell, Danita Kelly, Tashana Martin, Mandy Lee, Jenna Patterson, Drea Lane, Courtney Petrucci, Paula Fredrett, 
Anna Christopic, Jess, Laura Morgan, Jessica Cox, Christy Spence, Stuart Smith, Anne P, Cassandra Clark, David Y, Andrea Patterson, Leaf Ninja, Julia Ellis, Jordan, William Torres, Callie Dalheim, Mike Oxmal, Amy and Tiffany Alexander. Thank you so much for supporting the show, guys. I truly hope you enjoy all the early ad-free releases and, of course, those extra Dark Bites episodes. But right now, it's time to lower the lights, make yourself comfortable, and, of course, leave your disbelief at the door as we hear all about a neighbouring evil. There has only been one moment in my life when I've experienced utter and complete terror. The type of fear that shuts down your senses and leaves you petrified to the spot. I will never forget the incident, which was so traumatic that even now I often have nightmares in which I find myself back in the summer of 1982. Stood all alone in a small terraced house owned by a Mrs. Drinkwater, a spiritualist in the town where I grew up in the north of England. To relate my experiences of Mrs. Drinkwater and her celebrated talents, I need to digress slightly and go back over a hundred years to the carnage of the First World War. In this War to End All Wars, the so-called Pals Regiment, formed in northern industrial towns, paid a heavy toll for their bravery. It's said that in some streets, every other house had lost a son to the Great War. This devastation and loss promoted a huge popularity in clairvoyance and spiritualism, which was still in existence some 70 years later, when I was growing up in the late 70s and early 1980s. At that time, many towns in the north still had spiritualist churches, and many clairvoyants and mediums held gatherings in the front parlours of their own homes. Mrs Drinkwater was one such spiritualist. She lived in the middle of a terrace street, near to my house. Well known throughout the town she held twice-weekly seances, at the cost of two bob per person, the equivalent of ten pence. My own grandmother attended one such meeting. On the evening before, she'd borrowed and subsequently lost a valuable darning needle belonging to her aunt. During the seance, Mrs Drinkwater invoked some nameless spirit who told my grand to look in the dog's basket where she would find the lost needle. On returning home, my gran followed the spirit's instructions and subsequently found the darning needle. Not the most terrifying of stories, I grant you, but nevertheless, it had such a huge impact on my gran, who immediately resurrected her religious faith and became a staunch attendee at church until her dying day. Another widely known story regarding Mrs Drinkwater concerned a local factory owner who, if my memory serves me correctly, went by the name of Walsh. He'd misguidedly invested in machinery to manufacture car wheels to a set size and gauge. Unfortunately, this came just at the time when the American car factories 
changed the size and manufacture of car wheels, which not only left Walsh with useless machinery, but also placed him in a pile of debt. On the edge of bankruptcy, so the story goes, Walsh paid a visit to Mrs Drinkwater, who famously told him not to despair, that good fortune lay ahead. And she's also believed to have bizarrely declared, a lead pipe will one day save your life. As his business went from bad to worse, Mr Walsh became terrified about being attacked by one of the many people he owed money to. And with Mrs Drinkwater's premonition in mind, he kept a thick lead pipe beside his bed, in the event that he needed to fight off any would-be intruder. After another year of diminishing luck, and with no hint of the prophetic good fortune to come, Walsh saw no way out, and decided to make the ultimate decision. He was going to take his own life. After choosing a location, he made the short journey and, following a heavy drinking session in the Liverpool Dockland area, he walked over to the River Mersey, tied a noose around his neck, attached it to the riverside railings and silently dropped over the side of the walled embankment. No sooner had the rope snapped tight that Walsh realised he'd made a horrendous mistake. Desperately attempting to reverse his decision, his legs thrashed about as he unsuccessfully tried to gain a foothold against the steep, wet wall. Almost as the last pulses of life left his body, his foot suddenly caught against something protruding from the wall. A thick, lead pipe. Nearly faint with his efforts, Walsh managed to stand on the pipe, where, after an agonising wait, attempting to shout for help with an almost crushed windpipe, he was eventually saved by some passers-by. The story goes that that very next day, as he dejectedly walked along the busy road leading back home, a small motorised bike suddenly whizzed past him. Jumping onto the pavement to avoid the small machine, Walsh inquired of a young bystander what the small motorbike was. It's a moped, the boy said, adding, they're really popular with the kids down south. Walsh realised that his factory machinery was perfectly suited to manufacturing these smaller moped wheels, and weeks later, he began production on various prototypes. Within a year, Walsh's wheels were selling products across Europe, and the company grew to be exceptionally successful. The company only ceased trading after being purchased by a rival Japanese company, leaving Walsh a very wealthy man. Stories such as this elevated Mrs Drinkwater's reputation to an almost mythical status. Yet, to those living close by her, there was often a more sinister, harsher edge to these spiritual meetings. I remember one of my own classmates, Anne-Marie, visiting a séance with her mother. Looking back, it seems unbelievable that a child would attend such a thing. Anne-Marie was a very shy, sensitive girl, so perhaps she begged her mother to tag along, in the hope of receiving some comforting news after the unexpected death of her father, who had sadly been killed in a car crash the month prior. 
However, in spite of their hopes for messages of peace and comfort and love, for whatever reason, the seance took a disturbing turn. Mrs Drinkwater began her communication, her eyes closed, and then she apparently frowned. Her head began darting sharply around, and finally her head dropped. And when she raised it, her eyes still closed, she had a look that could easily be taken for slight amusement, and she stated she'd made contact with the spirit of a young man who, she said, was surrounded by flames and trapped in a car. As Anne-Marie and her mother sat in desperate anticipation, Mrs Drinkwater began to describe in graphic detail, in almost delight, the horror of the man who was trapped, even mirroring, almost mocking, his desperate screams as he was slowly enveloped in flames. This was all too much for Anne-Marie, who ran out of the house screaming and collapsed into a sobbing ball in the street. For months, the poor girl was so traumatised that she barely spoke. She wouldn't answer teachers when directly asked a question. She would just stare blankly back at them. My mother winced when such stories were told. She detested Mrs Drinkwater and called her a charlatan and a crook. Her only saving grace, she once told my dad, is at least she's kind to animals. She might be a bitch with humans, but I've seen her feed in the cat, so at least she's good in that way. By the summer of 1982, Mrs Drinkwater was a fragile, stooped old woman in her late 80s. I would often see her hobbling along the cobbled entry at the rear of her house. She would always be dressed in all black, as if in a state of constant mourning, her grey hair tied up in a bun, and her hobnail boots clattering along the stone cobbles of the entry. Every few yards, she would stop, lean against the backyard walls and regain her breath, before finally reaching the green gate which led to her back door. That summer holiday was our last one in primary school. We were 11 years old and soon set to move up to the older secondary school. On the first night of our school holiday, myself and three or four boys from the local council estate were searching the entryways near to our house. The reason for this mid-evening hunt was to search for my cat, Tigger, named after the Jungle Book character. He'd only been gone about 24 hours, which he had done before, but very, very rarely. The additional concern is that this particular area wasn't the safest. Gangs of lads seemed to congregate on most street corners of an evening, and it was believed amongst us school kids that some of these lads viewed cats as nothing more than something to chase, something to kick, and allegedly much worse. Over the previous months, loads of cats from the local area had disappeared without a trace. Sometimes one or two animals might turn up, dishevelled, injured and hungry. But more often than not, the cats never returned. And now, albeit only for 24 hours, 
our own cat had gone missing. As had the cat of one of my friends, although his cat, Millie, had been missing for over a week. So on this particular summer's night, as dusk began to fall, we found ourselves energetically searching the entry passages, calling out Tigger and Millie's names as we banged on bins and tapped on gates. As we passed the back of Mrs Drinkwater's house, we suddenly recognised the slight frame of the old lady standing motionless beside her open gate. Then, with the reflex of a much younger person, her bony hand unexpectedly grasped the nearest boy to her. All of our merriment instantly melted into a shocked silence as we turned to face the woman now holding our cowering friend. And now, for the first time in my life, I actually heard the old lady speak. Which of you boys can get into my house? she asked. I'm locked out. I remember thinking that her voice sounded somehow more like a child than I'd anticipated. She nodded up towards an upstairs window that was open at the back of the small terraced cottage. By now, she'd released the boy from her clutches and gestured to us to follow her into her backyard. In a circle, we stood around her back door as Mrs Drinkwater shook the handle to illustrate the fact it was locked tight. In those days, what was known as a glass veranda was a popular extension to the back of a house. In basic terms, walls and a roof of glass were supported by a wooden frame. Typically harsh red quarry tiles covered the floor. We now peered into Mrs Drinkwater's veranda as she pointed to a bundle of keys hung on a nail. Without any pleading or cajoling, she unexpectedly and forcibly prodded me on the shoulder. You'll have to climb through that window and get them keys. She ordered as a wizened face simultaneously nodded towards the keys and the open window upstairs. As the smallest of our group, it seemed like she deliberately picked me. If she'd asked any of the other boys, they would have aggressively and bluntly refused. There would have been no courtesy. Instead, I suddenly found myself following her command and climbing up her back wall, which, in turn, led onto her glass veranda. Looking back, it almost seems as if I was in a dream, almost under her control, as I began to walk along the thin rafters of wood towards the open upstairs window. As I looked down at the glass on either side of my feet, my precarious situation suddenly hit me, and I attempted to retreat back down the veranda roof. At that exact second, I was hit in the stomach by a long wooden washing stick wielded by Mrs Drinkwater. She had no intention of allowing me to renege on my efforts and to leave that roof. Go on! She screeched. Get through that window. You're almost there, you coward. Several times she prodded me with a thick stick until I had no option to do other than she asked. I dared not turn round to look at my friends below. Obviously aware of the precarious situation I'd placed myself in, they were utterly silent as they watched my very slow progress from far below. After a few minutes of carefully inching along the wooden beams, I finally reached the open window 
and squeezed through with ease, landing with an unexpectedly loud thump on the bare floorboards of Mrs Drinkwater's back bedroom. Let's have a quick break to talk to you about Policy Genius. Now, we all like to put off life insurance talk because it reminds us of our mortality. But life insurance isn't about death, it's about life. It's about ensuring the lives of those you love remain secure and comfortable. And I'm sure many of you will think, well, I'm covered through work or I'm covered through my bank account. But believe me, you want to check those finer details because you may be surprised what you're actually covered for. And this is exactly where Policy Genius come into their own. Yes, we could talk about how Policy Genius is America's leading online insurance marketplace or how their award-winning agents will walk you step by step through the entire process. But the best thing about Policy Genius for me is they don't have a dog in the fight. They're not going to strong arm you towards one company or another. They've no incentive to do so. Their only incentive is to listen to your needs, scour America's top companies and find you the best price. For example, with Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that begin at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options even offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. There's a reason why Policy Genius has thousands of five-star reviews on Google and Trustpilot, and you'll find out what it is when you tick life insurance off your to-do list with Policy Genius. So head over to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you can save. That's policygenius.com. For a few moments, it took me time to readjust to the complete darkness that I was now plunged into. Outside, the final slivers of daylight were disappearing and there was not even a small trace of light to illuminate my passage through the house and down to the veranda where I could retrieve the keys. After a few seconds, which seemed to last like a lifetime, I began to make out the walls in the room. Bare of any paint or wallpaper, they were rendered in a thick red plaster, giving the appearance of some derelict ruin. Each wall held numerous indecipherable etchings. Looking back now, they seemed to be similar to what you will see on a rune stone. As all the houses in these streets were exactly the same shape, I instinctively knew where the bedroom door was, and I now edged slowly towards it. If I could open the door, I would find the staircase beside the upstairs bathroom. I was suddenly conscious of my own deep breathing, which was amplified in the empty room. The shape of the door now barely visible, loomed in front of me, and with a shaking hand, I grasped the door handle and pulled tightly. Nothing moved. The door remained tightly closed. Oh God, please open, I said in desperation. I was conscious that my voice was shaking and I was near to tears. Come on, I said once again as I gave the door a harsh jolt. Still, it would not open. I stood motionless, at a momentary loss of what to do next. And then I heard it. On the other side of the door, there was a barely audible click. It was as if my tug at the door had released some locking mechanism, and now, slowly, the bedroom door began to open of its own volition. To my relief on the other side of the door, 
a shaft of fading light filtered through the skylight at the top of the stairs. In this half-light, I could now clearly see that there was a small sliding lock on the door. I reasoned that my vigorous efforts at tugging at the door must have somehow loosened the bolt. For a second, I stood in silence, watching as the house dust slowly danced in the light from the window. It was at this moment that I suddenly became conscious of a gut-wrenching stench which seemed to envelop the whole house. The smell was like something rotting and it was so strong it instantly caused me to gag. Fearing I was going to be sick, I covered my mouth and nose with the sleeve of my t-shirt and stumbled towards the top of the stairs, reaching out for the banister. It was there at the top of the stairs that the smell was the strongest. To my right, as I predicted, was the bathroom and a narrow, dark corridor leading to another bedroom. To this day, I don't know what made me briefly pause at the top of those stairs, but I suddenly had the compelling feeling that someone or something was staring at me from that bathroom. Slowly, I twisted my head to peer into the darkness, and there, staring back at me, stood in between the bathroom curtains, was what appeared to be a tall, human-shaped silhouette. But this silhouette seemed to have antlers, like that of a small deer. The next few moments, as I stood at the top of those stairs, were the most frightening moments of my life. The thing stood silent and motionless, with half of its body visible and the other half concealed behind the curtain. It almost seemed as if it had made a half-hearted attempt to hide itself. The thing was tall and thin. The figure did not move a sinew of its body and, as my eyes adjusted, I made out the vague features of a face. Briefly, our eyes met as we both stood motionless. I could hear the terrified whimpers being issued by my throat and my whole body was shaking and I'm not afraid to say I wet myself with fear. I was paralysed, waiting for this thing to say or do something, anything. All I can remember is the feeling that at any second this thing was going to lunge at me and attack like some savage dog. I genuinely could not move from the top of the stairs and stood staring in blank terror. I truly believe that momentarily my body had shut down. How long I remained in that state remains a mystery. The last thing I remember is the thing tilted its head to the side and I felt something grab my shoulders pulling me down the stairs. My next memory was of me lying on my sofa in my house with my mother and several neighbours, including Mrs Drinkwater, staring down at me in deep concern. One of them held a glass of brandy to my lips which I was made to drink. Mrs Drinkwater apparently acknowledged to my mother she'd asked me to climb through the window, and when I didn't return for a period, she got a neighbour to kick the door in 
whereupon she found me at the foot of the stairs unconscious. Despite my mother's disdain of Mrs Drinkwater, she seemed surprisingly okay with the whole situation. As I frowned at the burning sensation of the alcohol going down my throat, I noticed Mrs Drinkwater didn't take her eyes off me the whole time. Over the next couple of weeks, two unexpected events occurred within a day of each other. Firstly, our cat, Tigger, turned up out of the blue at our back door. He looked dishevelled and was utterly ravenous with hunger. His blue collar was also missing. My mother suspected that he'd been accidentally locked in someone's coal bunker, and I suspected he'd thankfully escaped after being chased by one of the gangs. The very next day, as mother left for work, she found that someone had placed a small circular pebble in the middle of our front doorstep. On the surface, a crude white face had been painted on the stone, which consisted of a simple white outline for the eyes, nose, and a thin slit of a mouth. Beneath the pebble was a ripped piece of paper with my name, Thomas, written in pencil. Suspecting it was a gift from a secret admirer of mine, my mother placed the stone, along with the note, on the kitchen table for me to find. I can remember finding the stone when I got up out of bed, and fearing it was a gift from a particularly forward neighbour called Gail, I left it out on the table to confirm my disinterest to my mother and father. That night, as I lay in bed, I happened to notice what can only be described as a green luminous light shining from the top of my bookshelf. Immediately intrigued by this, I got out of bed and turned on the light and stood on a chair to find the source of the green glow. There, in the middle of the shelf, was the stone. I can remember being utterly transfixed by the object as every time I turned off the light, the stone would glow in luminous intensity. At the same time as being delighted with this new discovery, I was also annoyed with my mother for taking the liberty of placing the stone in my bedroom. Aware that my mum and dad were still watching TV downstairs, I felt that a confrontation was in order to prove my dislike of the suspected giver of the gift, Gail Jones. So I went downstairs... Why have you put this in my bedroom? I don't even like her. I bluntly asked my mother. Dramatically, I held up the stone to focus their attention on the subject of my annoyance. Instantly, I could see that my mother had not touched that stone. I just knew by the expression on her face. Hey, lose the attitude. My mother replied indignantly. I've not put anything in your room. Quizzically, she turned to my father, who was reading a book. Craig, did you put that stone in Tom's room? Again, I could see that my father was utterly baffled by the accusation. Although confused by its origin, the stone, due to its bizarre illuminosity, did become a prized possession. The only thing was, on several occasions, I was sure that I'd placed what I now call the light stone in one place only to find it turn up in another. I put all of this down to my adolescent forgetfulness 
and my generally disorganized nature. Then, a few weeks later, I returned from school to find my mother sitting on the sofa beside my Auntie Eileen. My mother was obviously shook up, and her face looked pale. She refused to tell me what the problem was. However, when she went upstairs to get changed, Auntie Eileen told me what happened. Apparently, as my mother was cleaning the kitchen that afternoon, she'd come across the light stone, which I'd left at the back of the sink. Thinking nothing of it, she left the stone where she found it and continued with her chores. On top of the tall bookcase in our living room was a mother-of-pearl box, which contained the ashes of my grandmother. In those days, it was still really common for small urns to be placed in someone's home or even in their favourite drinking establishment. Each week, my mother would dust and polish these shelves and their contents. After finishing cleaning the kitchen, my mother turned her attention to the bookcase. Before even starting the task, she instantly froze and stared up at the box of ashes, and there, resting on top of the box, was the light stone. When my Auntie Eileen received a distressed phone call from my mum, she immediately rushed down to our house. She found my mum in floods of tears, sitting on the couch. Apparently, she was so spooked by the incident that she insisted that Eileen immediately got rid of the stone. Seeing her sister so upset, Eileen picked up the stone, went outside and threw the stone in the bin. In 1993, Mrs Drinkwater died. Befitting of a Victorian lady, a horse-drawn carriage carried her coffin to its final resting place. There was quite a turnout in the street to see the coffin carried from the house. Four men in suited top hats stood in a line, and just before the coffin was placed in the carriage, an elaborately embroidered cloth was placed over it. In the centre of the cloth, was a circle subdivided into smaller segments, which I can only imagine pertained somehow to her spiritualist background. But as the guard of honour moved away, I suddenly saw the centre of the funeral cloth. And there, white on a black background, was the same simple face that was painted onto my mysterious stone. A sudden realisation hit me like a hammer blow and I cursed myself for not seeing it sooner. It was Mrs Drinkwater who had left that strange gift all those years earlier. Was it some curse or a grim thank you for attempting to get her back into her home? Unfortunately, I'll never know the answer to that or so many other questions. But one final strange incident casts a further shadow over Mrs Drinkwater's sinister reputation. You see, a few weeks later, when council builders began work on gutting Mrs Drinkwater's house, all the work was halted on the first day. The police were called, along with a forensic investigation team. Rumours spread that the builders pulled up the rotten floorboards of the bathroom and they discovered piles of skulls and bones. After weeks of fervid speculation and rumours, the local paper finally revealed the truth. 
buried beneath those floorboards were the bodies of over a hundred cats that had been killed and mutilated over the past 30 years. Wow, Thomas, what an amazing and truly terrifying experience you endured. I won't even hazard a guess as to what the entity was in the bathroom that you saw, but I will say it does go to show. You can never be too sure just how close you are to someone who's inherently evil. I know on a personal level that since reading that story, I've had that silhouetted image in my mind for quite a number of days, so thank you for that. And I'd also like to thank each and every one of you for choosing to spend your time with me here on Episode 4 of Season 10. For our Patreons, I will speak to you again on Sunday for yet another instalment of Dark Bites. And for everyone, I'll speak to you next week for Episode 5. And until then, remember, when you're discussing the paranormal, always try and leave some of your disbelief at the door. And I'll see you next week here on The Dark Paranormal. <laughs>